Hey guys, due to entirely foreseen, totally avoidable circumstances, Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is going to go on a two-week hiatus. We know this is a disappointment and that nothing can make up for it, that we alone send a shining beam of meaning into otherwise meaningless lives lived by rote. As an apology, we'll instead put out two episodes of an experimental thing we're doing called Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata colon Podcast Guys Talking to Erratic Errata. So get hype! Podcast Guys takes a long view and a long price. Spoilers will be commonplace. Listen at your own risk. Good morning, faithful reader. Welcome, fortunate seeker. This is Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a whirlwind reread of a practical guide to evil, where a historian and a literature scholar tackle the big questions about one of the greatest novels of the age, such as How many eyes do you really need? What are her signed marriage laws in Tegrevi lands like anyway? Should Cat look into getting some of these goblin munitions? And should she marry them to a goat? Gaining power is a lot like scaling a tower, Chancellor. The longer you do, the more likely you are to fall. Red Empress Regalia I, before ordering her Chancellor thrown out of the window. When we last left our heroes, everything blew up. As we go through this chapter, we see Cat pretty quickly just leave behind the scene of the disaster while the grown-ups deal with it, head off ostensibly into summer home, but actually just to run around the camps and find this other claimant who she feels nearby her. By the end of it, she has gotten into a couple of fights. She's almost gotten bright-sticked in the face, and all three claimants step onto the scene very dramatically. Did I miss anything? I don't think so. I think it's definitely quite the chapter we move from one disaster to a a more investigative slower thing that turns into a chase it's it's got quite the ups and downs this this chapter for sure i think you covered all of the high points and a couple of the low points as well you say disaster but i think that and the opening line of the chapter both serve as if I may, something of over-exaggerations by the standards to which Catherine will become accustomed. Uh, the first line reads, I was swatted down by the hand of an angry god, fire licking at my face. Which is not true. Things blew up. She gets swatted by gods later on. She fights gods. She defeats, and more importantly, is defeated by gods. This is very mortal and... I would appreciate having a more reliable narrator in the future. I mean, having an explosion go off in your face is never going to be pleasant. And frankly, if this exact situation had happened late in the book, late in the series, I guess, it would likewise be a disaster. Cat's always around some people who are relatively squishy. But she could just open up a hole into the night and suck in the explosion and then... (laughs) I suppose that's true. Despite this being her first assassination attempt, uh, or the first assassination attempt that she experiences, we haven't yet gotten to her first assassination attempt she attempts, that's later in this exact chapter. Uh, Catherine reacts now as she ever will. She is old hand at this. She assesses the damage, she sees she's fine, and she says, good, now time to disembowel whoever was responsible for that. Black picked so well. Sometimes is a bit over-aggressive, but frankly, that is her thought, and it wasn't her immediate action. She starts to prepare to do that, sure, but, you know, getting retribution <laughs> is uh, is important when your reputation is a big part of who you are, I suppose. So 
sure, go for it, Cat. Go disembowel a hero, a rebel. I guess we're not really sure. She's living up in the sentence to six or seven of the 13 cardinal virtues. 17 cardinal virtues, pardon. One of those unlovable primes. That's very true. Nice job, Cat. Way to, way to do your country proud. Also, oh no, Cat. Please stop doing your country proud. It only gets worse. Yeah. After... After a little bit of regional, national, eh, ethnic back and forth uh, between Sacker and Cat, their <laughs> Cat is checked on by this goblin who's very concerned about how Cat's doing, and Sacker is uh, missing an eye, which you know is a bit of a recurring theme around Cat. But Cat checks in on Sacker. I have to say, come on, Cat. There's an eye hanging out of her head. She's fine. It's not that big of a deal. You only need one to see, really. Plus, scarring is metal. Well, I don't know what the big deal is here. And that's why I think it's so remarkable about this moment, really. Cat sees something, is judgmental about it, but it's a seed planted. Give it five books time and she'll actually be imitating it herself. She realized what strength there is in ocular mutilation. And she gets the first piece of evidence for that theory. Because when Sacker turns to go, she manages a swagger, despite having lost half her armor and her face. That's Catherine, book seven in a nutshell. Just half a face, three limbs on average, about half a percent BAC from death, and she looks good doing it. She does, and it is noteworthy. Sacker loses half her armor. I'm wondering if that relates. Sakura obviously doesn't have a name, and so does armor actually slow her down in some way? I, I'm still a little iffy on armor physics in this setting, but that could relate. Shortly after this swaggering like a general, Kat uh, again drops a line that makes me uncomfortable, and I assume you're in the same boat. She says, uh, quote, I followed Sakura, making a point of getting ahead of her through use of my Heaven gifted longer legs. She's talking about gifts from the heavens. Cat, I promise you, you don't have gifts from the heavens at this point. That's well outside of <laughs> what you can expect going forward. And while she talks about the heavens gifting her something, she's in some kind of childish race with a goblin who's missing half of her face. I We know Cat's got an issue with her height, kind of a, a complex about it. She's making this big deal about having longer legs than a goblin so that she can walk faster in this weird contest that she's created for herself after an assassination attempt that nearly killed said goblin. And she's wrong about everything, too, because while she gets ahead of Sacker, sure, whatever, Sacker isn't hurrying. Sacker is not having this race, this weirdly racialized race, this race race, if you will. Mm. But I also doubt that Catherine could be faster than Sacker if Sacker wanted to be faster than Catherine. Goblins are nightmare creatures that lurch forward like jump scares in a horror game. They do, and they are pretty speedy, especially going up against such a short human like Cat. I, I imagine it wouldn't be much of a contest, really. But speaking of race races, speaking of race generally, I do have to note that just a couple of sentences later, Black tells Captain, and I'm, I hate to have to ruin the good name of our podcast with this language, but I'll survive without you dogging my shadow for an hour. What is dogging? Black, this is your one of your oldest friends. I can't imagine that's an appropriate thing to be saying in mixed company. I understand that in some relationships, this kind of thing functions as a an expression of bonding in private, maybe it's okay in their private relationship, but he's just looking small-minded in front of, in front of at the very least, his apprentice he's just taken on. What if Cat starts to think that's okay? Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I, what next? Is he going to ask uh, Istrid and Sacker if they're looking a little green around the gills because they're injured? Right, come on, Black, just calm down a little bit. I know you're probably a little hurt or shaken up by this this blast, but... Let's get it together here. I'm curious about the events of the conquest. Istrid says that it's been a while since she'd been on the receiving end of one of those. I assume she means randomly exploding pavilions. And I have to wonder, 
Which was the last one? I, I'm not shocked they were blown up. But when? By whom? What hero died for having attempted that? Write a prequel, EE. E. I There's a chance that it was during the conquest, but there's also a chance their munitions accidents could have happened. But I think the easiest answer here is during the, I don't know if conquest is the right word, the pacification, the colonization of the orcs by black. I imagine there was some legion versus orc combat going on up there. Pacification is an oof word, but not a bad one. It is an oof word. All of them are going to be. All of the imperialism words are bad? Doctor, I know. Learn something new every day. Sorry, not a shocker. Sharper. I'm sorry, I'm under the impression that it's actually a comet. Or at least that's Catherine's first consideration. Which, not only that, but a bad batch of sharpers by Sacker's analysis is enough to do that. Like, I know sharpers are big deal dynamite sticks. But remind me, are the ones used in the war games later in this chapter minimally lethal? Yeah, I was about to comment on that. The ones in the war games are very much toned down. That's, uh, you know, they're, they stun, they're, you know, they're the equivalent of, gosh, I don't know, some kind of less than lethal munition. But even still, because of the type of thing, the type of entity, the type of creatures that sharpers are used against for much of the story, I easily forget how dangerous and powerful they are. They're like, you, you refer to them as a, a stick of dynamite or, you know they're that they're a grenade they're not in my mind sharpers are the thing you throw to stun the dangerous enemies but in reality they're the thing you throw to destroy a formation of you know humans callowins or what have you it's it's very easy to get lost in how powerful they are when you see the toned down version and then you see the full version used against things that aren't going to be affected by the full version. Or, you know, thrown at the troops already in the meat grinder, and it's like, okay, you've killed 50 people, 20 zombies. That right. does, that doesn't mean anything. Exactly. It, I mean, they it, all have lives and families, but you can kill them later. Right, exactly. The, yeah, the, uh, the goblin munitions, the only one that I feel like I have a pretty good grasp of as far as just being able to grok what it's going to do is the, the fire. And that's kind of a unique case since that the scaling on that one is never in question it's utter destruction no matter when it's used or on whom it's used well then we can be glad that there's no goblin fire here at summerhold yeah and speaking of the dangers of the goblin munitions there's a little children's rhyme included about the children's rhyme and children's game apparently um made up in callow about the (laughs) goblin munitions that Callowan children play based on imperial sappers using these incredibly lethal weapons of war and if this sounds like i'm building up to say how horrific it's really me saying i really really like that because it's very realistic that's how things happen i mean the example that comes to mind is the um sort of song that children sing the uh, ring around the rosies the or the london bridges all these these songs and games that kids have that are about horrific inc- incidents for some reason <laughs> and uh you know just it carries through here that this is a song where children are singing about very lethal grenades being used to destroy their ancestors or listeners who are unfamiliar possibly from a non-American or non-English speaking native context. Those two referenced rhymes, Ring Around the Rosie is, Ring around the rosie, a pocket full of posies, ashes, ashes, we all fall down. Which in popular understanding is a reference to the Black Death or bubonic plague that swept Europe over and over and over. Well, it's swept Afro-Eurasia, but Western emphasis we addressed that recently. And London Bridge is falling down is simply London Bridge is falling down, falling down, falling down. London Bridge is falling down. My fair lady, the bridge falls. And for anyone not from England, London Bridge is the lame one. Tower Bridge is the cool one. All very good context. Thank you for that. I see an inscrutable cognitive leap in the next few paragraphs. Catherine recognizes that a sharper wouldn't kill a named without a good spot of luck. And in response, Black says, we weren't the target. Why not? 
they wouldn't kill a named without a good bit of luck, but one stroke of luck could cut out half of the reason to be afraid of the Empire. On top of that, a few paragraphs later, it's mentioned that, sure, a Sharper wouldn't kill a name, but it could horrifically injure them, maim them. And I gotta be honest, maiming the Black Knight seems like it would be pretty useful. We're not going to kid ourselves, this would never hurt Captain. Um, even luck or no, a Sharper's not going to do much damage to Captain. But Black Knight, sure, if you blind him, if you give him a severe concussion, I guess, if you destroy one of his limbs, something like that, you're taking away the aura of invincibility. Failing an assassination against the knight, now I'm doing it, dang it. Failing an, uh, an assassination attempt against the Black Knight just is par for the course, it's what people expect. But if you hurt him, uh, that could go a long way to for recruitment, for morale, for any rebels or heroes that are around. So saying that we weren't the target, I agree, is a leap. Although going after the commanders is also a very valid thing. That said, killing two birds with one stone is, or rather killing two conquering generals with one sharper, seems like it would be a worthwhile attempt. Following this notable conviction that they are above this kind of threat, Black sends Catherine off to an evening by herself in a place with in a place where they just suffered an assassination attempt and where she is known to have 3.5 other claimants lurking about very boldly. I realize it's sink or swim, but it's very sink or swim. It is, and we touched on this last episode that I think this is more of him. I think this is doing two things. One, he wants her to accomplish things. And frankly, if she goes out and deals with some of the claimants and gets more powerful, that only helps this situation. And it also helps shape her name into being the more independent, independently capable role that he wants from her, I'm gathering. So it it makes sense to an extent. I agree that it is definitely what one might call a strong choice. No black makes no other sort. Of course. Kat's response to him sending her off, though, is excellent. It, she says, I'll find a way to keep myself busy. Notably, she responds neutrally. And to me, that reads like some kind of threat. It doesn't sound like Kat shrugging and saying, sure thing. It sounds like she's warning him <laughs> that she's going to be busy. You're using a lot of apparent analogy, but no, that is what's happening. Very plainly. Yeah. He sends her off. She begins to leave, and um, Black tells her to talk to Scribe to get the materials he needs, which surprises her a little bit because it feels like, once again, he's reading her mind. And Kat drops such a line. She says internally, I really need to find a book on names. First and foremost, what an absurd notion, Kat. That will definitely never happen. There's no such thing as a book on names that you will have a hand in creating that will control the destinies of most people in all of Colonia. That's absurd. But that said, this got me thinking. It's it's odd to me that so much of name lore within this universe, you know, internal name lore, not you know the wiki that we have access to, is based on what we're told, oral or incidental history it's stories passed from mentor to apprentice or from within a band of five or that sort of thing or it's the sort of history where it's references or inferences from writing about big events and it, there it, I, we don't often see or ever see an explicit here's a book about this named individual and what they did and what worked for them and there's Definitely nothing like Black's expertise on name lore and how roles interact and how to manipulate the stories and that sort of thing. And I'm wondering if that is an intentional result of the interference of the gods or fate or fate, capital F, the bard, or if it's just that the majority of name aren't aware of, aren't aware to the level that Black is, and the few that are aren't interested in jotting down notes on their understanding that might be used against them. I don't know. It's just an interesting, she says, I want a book on names. And I don't really think there is one. And that's interesting to me. Perhaps that's the comment itself on the nature of stories. This is a, in the vein of Walter Benjamin, uh, 
a lionizing of the storyteller and the oral tradition and a if not condemnation and acknowledgement of the deficiency of the novel uh and really the deficiency of archivally minded printed documentation stories and modern conception of history are very different things and perhaps the only name the very nature of name lore is that it must be passed from one to another from an active storyteller to an active listener. You need interlocutors, not merely an archivist and later a scholar. Or not. I can see that, but the existence of named who are explicitly scholarly in their role, I'm thinking of named that have things like, I believe there's a haunted librarian. Is that, there's, there's some kind of librarian, there's an archivist, that sort of thing. It's interesting to me that they, of all people, are not capable of compiling some kind of book on named. That they're, you're saying it benefits or maybe isn't even possible without having this spoke in this oral history. If anybody could do it, it would be named, but I'm wondering if they're just too deep within their role, too deep within the story to be able to, because Black is unique, obviously, nearly singular in his understanding before cat in his understanding of how these stories work and how to manipulate them those who can do that and are also overlapping with the overlap between those who can do that and those who can record it probably next to non-existent and if that's the case great i stand by wondering if that is happenstance or if that's a manipulation by the gods or fates to ensure that this kind of thing, that that kind of thing doesn't happen. From the overarching metaphysical nature of the world down to the concrete, when Catherine comes upon Scribe, she's kneeling in front of a low table. We had a, uh, we had a deicide and applied blasphemy recently where we talked about our lack of non-Western expertise. And... I think even at this point, we still must admit we have light holes in our understanding. But I can say, with the knowledge I've gained, that kneeling at the table is certainly non-Western. Oh, yeah, definitely. I am trying to recall, I feel as though Precy tends towards taller tables, Western-style tables. Does that sound right to you, the sort of at the events that Kat ends up at shortly? I don't recall noticing people right. reclining, kneeling, what have you, though I may have forgotten. But that I don't notice suggests that it's what is typical to me. And I'm seated in a chair right now. Right. I, the thing that wouldn't surprise me is if the Precy reclined at feasts, given how much of their whole deal is incredibly Roman. But I don't recall that being the case. We'll find out soon enough. But uh, I'm just wondering if this is a scribe thing a scribes people thing a campaign thing hard to say when she reaches that desk scribe is kneeling at she tries to get a glimpse at the paper the scribe is working on and she says none of it made sense to me it was gibberish in a mix of karsum and mthethwa as far as i could tell ciphered most likely sure maybe probably probably in fact You've been saying the languages for a week. There's also the possibility you just don't get it because you're a noob. If I I took a few semesters of a foreign language in college, and I have to say a good semester or two in, if I had walked up and seen a sheet of paper with said language on it, there's a very real chance at a glance I would not be able to tell you if it were ciphered or not. <laughs> Especially at a very advanced name-enhanced scribe type of level. Oh, yeah, especially. Her reason for approaching Scribe is to get some gear for her night on the town, so to speak. That's a terrible description. Please keep it. <laughs> when she's given the gear, the clothing and um, some money and the like, Kat is taken aback, is unhappy with it. She says, how could I possibly, how could you, she says, how could you possibly have known that I would need those before I even did? This is one of those times in this story where it's making me think there there let me try that again there are times in this story where it would be interesting to have another character's perspective on events to see what their named abilities look like what their aspects 
feel like from their perspective to see different things, especially as they relate to characters we're more familiar with. This is not one of those times for me. I think seeing Scribe in action, seeing Scribe from her perspective working on things like this, acquiring clothing for Kat, something as base as that, or seeing Scribe fade out of the foreground, I think that would probably lessen the effect because similarly with um, some of the things Hakram does later, it would lessen the effect because so much of their ability is in treating the world like a story where they are not the main character and having their perspective be in the foreground shifts that, it, it twists that, and more understanding takes away from how they interact with our story, with us reading The Practical Guide to Evil in a way that doesn't benefit our understanding of Kat and her understanding of the story, which is, you know, what's going on in Colernia in the fiction. And so I, I just appreciate that Scribe and Hackram rarely get perspective chapters. Hackram gets a couple, and we don't really dig into their how their abilities work in a practical sense, because we don't need to know, and they, they work better when we don't. The only perspective we get from Scribe is when she's not Scribe, even, which is the only acceptable thing. Completely agreed. But what we do get to start peeking into, Catherine says she was starting to hate that she was playing a game where everybody seemed to know the next 10 moves except for her, which is true. She is. They do. She doesn't. It is. But as we get into the story over the millions of words, she begins to play the game, she makes strides, and by the end of everything, she's the one who's thought 15 steps ahead, even though she's fighting an opponent who's done the same plus one. And that's a wonderful curve, because even though she always has to deal with surprises and unknowns, here she's just reacting to unknown. She's pioneering her method of throw herself into chaos and hope it works out. But later on, she engineers chaos. She keeps track of position. She understands the risks as she knows them, and she understands how far the risks she doesn't know may go. And it's a fun development. This is a far cry from her climb into a cave with a close friend and put up the conspiracy theory style boards of notes on the wall, <laughs> to be sure. But yeah, it, it is it is fun to see this beginning of where she recognizes the need for that sort of thing. And speaking of that kind of development, shortly after that, she says, what was I going to do, though? Complain my needs were being seen too, too well? Frankly, later Kat would complain about that and not for this I don't believe it and it's it's uncomfortable. There's a, a level of uh, Kat preferring more Spartan accommodations and that kind of thing, sure, but most of it I think is she would sniff out some kind of trap or some kind of advantage in this situation that she would be looking for, I guess. Here it's just, I don't know, I don't like this and I'm not sure why, and later on she would not like it, but she would be very aware as to why. And that, my friend, is what we call growth. When she's given her outfit, she puts it on, finds that it's pretty ideal for the purpose, and it's a nice break from the from her uniform, from her work clothes. She says it makes her feel a little less like a doll dressed up in evil clothes. And while it's something of a throwaway line, I think it's an interesting perspective that Kat in this analogy treats evil as something that you can wear, which is her entire project. She's hoping to put on a mantle of evil for ultimately good, if for a nationalistic reason, ends. And as we go on, we find out how difficult it really is to simply dress up in evil. Sure, she perverts evil to her own ends, but it's not just something she wears. I think that ties in really well with our previous discussion or discussions on exactly how a role functions. The nuance between it being a simple mantle that you put on and being an intrinsic part of who you are. It's a blurred line, definitely, and I think Kat doesn't really understand what all that entails yet. That said, I have to say, evil clothes. Wasn't she just wearing pretty much standard-issue legionary armor? It is it, In her mind, is evil clothes just normal armor? I really... Kat's relationship with armor is an interesting one. I'd like to give this to you, but I have to say, are you questioning whether dressing as a member of the Legions of Terror is evil? 
<laughs> okay, fair enough. That that's a fair point. <laughs> In addition to the clothing for her her night out, she's given a, a handful of coins and a leather purse, and they are specifically twenty silver coins, Marchford coins. Cat points out that they wouldn't be as widely accepted as a price, as pricey denarii. And part of that is based on the metallurgy, the amount of silver within the currency, but that they'd attract less attention than imperial silver. So here there are a couple things I think worth noting. Um, first, there's further info. We talked a couple of chapters ago, relatively recently, uh, about what the coins were made of. More confirmation, silver coins on both sides of the where the border was 20 years ago. But it's interesting to me, both coins are in use, both the silver for the Marchford silver and the Precy silver. The Precy is considered better coinage. It's more pure. It's in this city of all cities. It's got the mark of the people who have all of the power. Great. But it's also more noticeable if somebody has the silver. Is that just a denomination thing? As simple as cat looks poor and if she has the better silver that's suspect if to me it seems like if the coinage was in circulation to the extent that it's more useful and more recognized which the pricey silver seems to be you would think it would be more noteworthy if somebody had different coinage than that especially coinage from a different city i don't know uh, i'm curious on your thoughts on this the only possible way to support her statements that I can think of is if she's hoping to seem as though she has recently come from Archford or even Norther, where perhaps Imperial Silver hasn't penetrated as fully because of a currency it's dominant. It's dominant, bro. I'm no economist because that's a pretend job for losers, but I, I can't think of a different way. Especially since, you know, if she's wanting to seem like she's come from far away, Again, that seems like it would attract more attention rather than less. I, I don't know. It's it's an interesting take that I think hints at some things going on that we just that you and I just aren't privy to as far as the culture of Callow, or maybe just the culture of Summerholm being this hub of imperial presence. I don't know. After Speaking with Scribe, Cat heads off into the camp to seek out her rival claimants. She pokes around a little bit, heading towards the city before she starts following one of these poles, one of these presences she can just sense in her mind. Side note, kind of fun that that is the first named power that Cat really interacts with and later becomes kind of the hallmark of one, oh of, her, my. one of her main things towards the end of the story. But after, after this, she says, and I'm just going to read this couple of lines here, it occurred to me for the first time that the sensation might go both ways. If I could tell when they were close, could they, could they do the same? That could make this whole spying business unfortunately difficult if it were true. Cat heads off into this maze with this half-cocked plan that is ultimately to poke around and see what happens. This might be Kat's worst made and worst implemented plan in the entire series. It makes sense. She's new to the game. She's barely trained. But this is also the kind of thing you'd expect, like, uh, you know, to use the term very nicely and generously, a street rat to be good at and be more aware of. I don't know. It's very strange to me that, <laughs> maybe not very strange, it's fun to me that Kat makes just the worst plan imaginable and then follows through on it realizes hmm this might be a bad plan and then very shortly thereafter says oh well what's the worst that could happen and goes goes on with it anyway it's a miracle she ever survived isn't it though the chapter no kidding but of course she has to because she's the protagonist which we know because she's the villain and we know she's a villain because as she starts hunting down this name that maybe can feel her or this presence that can maybe feel her presence because of a, of course it can Catherine. She says rather her narration, her narration says verbatim, where are you going to run now? My pretty cat was not cut out for heroism at all. She was meant to have this role. And that's the only thing that sees her through. My pretty. Can you be more evil than that? And 
my pretty is a phrase that I don't think anybody outside of a cartoon villain has ever uttered. And Catherine is nothing if not a family-friendly PG-rated cartoon villain. After Cass says, my pretty, she starts moving towards the, the presence, the claimant, moving quickly to try to corner them. And then the presence, the sense she has, is snuffed out. She loses it. And to me, this doesn't feel like something that is done practically, meaning without magic or without named support of some kind. It feels like a named thing. It feels like some way... Absolutely. It, it, it's, it's a role side thing. And... That seems odd for this person who is a claimant to have that, which frankly seems like a pretty strong ability considering most of how these claimants, most of what these claimants need to be doing right now is dealing with each other. And one of them has a huge advantage in that since they can control whether their presence is felt by the others. I don't know if this is, I don't know if this is indicative of the type of squire that this specific person is heading towards. If they're a more stealth based squire or if they're more subterfuge-based squire or something like that. But it's it seems like such a big advantage compared to Cat, whose main role-granted ability right now is, what, learns things slightly faster? Valuable, but not in the immediacy like this one is. There's no way Cat survives these encounters. She has useful powers, but not for fighting. Yet. Not Very yet. much yet. Right. And... Speaking of that, this when she realizes this presence is gone, she starts thinking and she says internally, I realized I was being baited and I'd fallen for it like a farmer buying magic beans, which added insult to very real risk of injury. I mentioned just a few minutes ago, Kat had made and followed her worst laid plan ever. I think I stand corrected since her next her follow-up to that realization well her follow-up to that realization is no need to be coy about this and she just calls out to the person who's hunting her uh she doesn't yet know is this presence hiding trick both ways does this person also lose their sense if cat loses hers she doesn't know if this person is doing that to hide or if this person is weakened by she knows nothing about the details but she just instigates a fight i guess with frankly another line similar to the my pretty in the are you going to make me wait all night very much a villain standing there waiting for the hero to show themselves kind of line and while she cribs everything she can from cartoon villain nonsense she also cribs a line from what i think I can say uncontroversially is one of the worst sci-fi books ever written. And the whole audience will be in total agreement with me on this and no one will write in angrily. Absolutely. When she says, fear is sloppiness. Fear is the fault line in solid stone. Fear is the enemy's mind drawing blood before his sword. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. That's all verbatim from Practical Guide, yes. Except for the bad parts that were dumb. <laughs> which are from Dune, which is bad and dumb. <laughs> which actually is a striking comparison. I think I had read Dune after catching up on where Practical Guide was at the time. And perhaps it's for that reason that the book really came off so poorly to me, because my critiques of it are what I perceive to be misogynies, Islamophobias, homophobias. And the nature of the guide is that a lot of these issues, well, surely not perfectly addressed, because w where are they perfectly addressed in the world, are honestly, responsibly, and pretty thoroughly dealt with. Islamophobia being the weakest one because obviously there is no cut and paste real world religion in here and there's very little one-to-one -one connection to major monotheisms in this book, these books, this series. And be sure to join us next week on PGTFH as we discuss more of everybody's favorite sci-fi novel. If you guys wanted to be a Patreon tier, give me a lot of money and I will put myself through it. But it needs to be a lot. But then I have to read Dune like, 2. Give us two lots of money and we will do it. But it needs to be two lots. Agreed. And you can give us that money at patreon.com slash P-G-T-E-E. -E.
But can I be mean to Catherine? Like, just schoolyard playground mocking mean? Of course. She narrates when she encounters her quarry. There was no warning except for a flicker of movement at the edge of my sight. The shape moved fast. Faster than I'd seen anyone without a name ever move. So what, Catherine? Were they wearing plate mail? Because <laughs> she's got a thing about armor and She really speed. does. <laughs> oh, you really got her there. Just drag her. I wish I had been a bully. Do you? I'm thankful I get to be a bully. There you go. There's Following that, there's a bit of a fight. More of a scuffle with this newcomer. They're trying to kill each other so they can claim the name. It's really more of a scuffle. I mean, it's more of a scuffle. There's a lot of running back and forth and one person using their mobility and stealth while Kat uses her, let me do a quick check here, ability to stand in one place and mostly block attacks coming at her. Um, And during the midst of this, Kat drops one of those amazing turns of phrase that i've talked about before just adoring in this story she says uh she's talking about the disappearing trick they have a few cards up their sleeves i didn't even know were in the deck and that feels like it's bordering on a mixed metaphor of some kind but i just love it it you know exactly what she means even if it feels like you'd have to take a moment to process exactly what she's talking about so Catherine recognizes she made a mistake in not considering that maybe the power she had to track others also let them track her because she is a fool. But then she makes another. In the battle, she gets cut on the hand, which, you know, short-term, great, long-term, very bad for the fight. But then she begins to monologue. First blood to you, you creepily silent masked ambusher. I concede it out loud. Still, to quote... And she's cut off by an attack, because of course she is, because you don't monologue unless it's to an actual productive end. If if the monologue's not the means to an end, you've really, really messed up. And this is definitely not the means to an end, it's just Kat talking. She continues to learn in this battle, because this is her first life-and-death combat, isn't it? She's been in a life-and-death situation with the assault in the very first chapter. But, and perhaps in the swamp, but that's a name dream, and I'm not going to credit that for anything. Oh, sure. This is her first fight for her life that we know about. Mm-hmm. And while she makes a mistake of monologuing, she acquires a, she learns a lesson, and in doing so, acquires a habit. She finds that her opponent is taking advantage of the crowded, tent-choked environment they're fighting in. And she says that the solution is obvious, break the environment. And so she begins smashing tents. And later on, you'll notice she smashes anything she can get her wicked little hands on, whether it's the boundary between various planes of existence, whether it's the entirety of the first floor of the Dead King's central palace through the Hierophant, whether it's the relatively, unfortunately, lakeless fields on which she's doing battle. She will change the environment in every major combat she can. Everything is forecast in the first book. In the first 5% of the story, 100% of the story is visible. Not to be weird about this, but I think there's a reason that Kat gets along so well with goblins. The goblins cannot have asked for a better human. (laughs) It's also, it's, it makes sense. Let me, let me see where I want to, how I want to approach this. Every major engagement, you say she, she, modifies the environment mostly through breaking to be clear that's a very very powerful tool she's she's a capable combatant on her own she learns from black she has tricks she has the woe backing her up for much of the story she's got a lot of raw power but in many instances she is alongside her individual named skills and importance she's the leader of armies and in a battlefield, the ability to drastically and perhaps more importantly, dramatically change the environment is absurdly valuable. Kat learns that early and leans on it heavily, like you mentioned. And it, it's a it's a nice little thing that goes a long way to explaining how to explaining her incredible record when it comes to field battles or sieges or any kind of battle that she's involved in. Environment control is very important, and Kat tends to have that. 
and even relatively mundane environmental control. The most powerful figure on the continent is, I hope you do not contest me, doubtless Trismegistus himself. And even when he has the masses of the tattered armies of man before his gates, he uses a pit trap to try to gut one of their flanking, one of their protecting legions, protecting bodies out in the waste. And it works pretty well. The environment is everything. A totally minor point a little later is when they finally speak in language rather than with swords, which we can all agree is a more elegant language, truer to the human spirit. Really? The stranger speaks to Grebby and calls her a cow. And then we get a linguistic note that I think is completely superfluous, and I love it. He hadn't said cow exactly. The actual word he'd used meant bull's daughter, though the meaning was the same. Very roundabout language to Grebby. And I think that's fun. It's just a fun little detail. And apparently it's a fact of the language rather than the word for cow. I recall back when I was learning German in the first story in Grimm's fairy tales, the Frog King, it talks about in the old days when wishing still worked, there was a king who had three beautiful daughters, but the youngest was the most beautiful of all. Very fairy tale. But for the rest of the story, she's called a Königstochter, a king's daughter. German has a word for princess. It's princessin. It's literally princess. But the whole story, they just call her king's daughter because that's kind of fairy tale-y, I guess. But here, it's the language, and I think it's fun. And meanwhile, goat husband is an insult, which is great because different things are differently insulting in different languages. And I love it. I mean, calling somebody a goat husband is probably pretty universally insulting. Whatever you say, goat husband. Oof. Not him. You mentioned earlier Dune is terrible and bad because of the way it fails to live up to my standards in social justice. And soon after, she calls him a goat husband, which doesn't trip any of my sensitivities. She demonstrates this story's commitment to social justice because the combatant touches his wound, his fingers come back red, and he uses the blood to trace a line across his clay mask. And Catherine, with an open heart and an embrace of diversity, says, would it be culturally insensitive to ask what in the hells you just did? She is truly a saint. Beginning a question with, would it be culturally insensitive to, is much like beginning a comment with, no offense, but... I don't mean to be racist, but you have to admit, Catherine is truly a saint. And I use this word derogatorily, <laughs> because in the next line she says, weeping heavens again, stop it, I hate you. Come on, Cat, get it together. After, after she says that, her follow-up is complaining about villains saying things like, this isn't over, before running away. She says, yeah, why do villains do this? Hey, Kat, you also said, for instance, my pretty, internally, to be fair, and you dropped the, are you going to make me wait all night line. Kat, you're no better. Why are you upset about him saying that and not in a banter way? You're just actually upset? You, that's you. You're becoming that person. Or rather, you are that person and are becoming better. There's a bit of a back and forth here before... <laughs> before Kat says to her combatant here, I was aiming for a talk, but I suppose shanking you in a dark alley will have to do. Never change, Kat. I, the violence is the second option, but if that's what you have to go for, you will be brutal, efficient, and frankly, not too concerned if that's what you have to end up doing. Afterwards, she says, in all fairness, you started it, which... She went out tonight looking to find and maybe kill the other claimant, and she started the chase. Is he really to blame for getting the first strike in? I mean, yes, Kat says so, and she's our narrator, so everything she says is objectively true. Before this podcast, I looked up the real-life word, and I'm going to go with that pronunciation. At the end of the chapter, we see the claimants come together. We have the Tegrebi in the mask. We have a goblin with red-orange skin. So, based on what I know of color schema, the Diddy Kong of goblins. And until we get a name, I propose we refer to Chider as such. And what I looked up, a Saninke girl who is wearing what looks to a Kalawin like a bridal veil. Note, Kalawin marriage custom. But to the Saninke, 
white was the color of death. Let's keep an eye on that. Maybe it comes up and it doesn't get mentioned that it's death again. Maybe it will be nothing. But I'm curious. Yeah, I, I think that is one of those things that's worth paying attention to. There's uh, Anytime there's a throwaway line, a, a small line like that, I think it'll be great to... It's a reread. It's It'll be great to see where these things go. We've got quite the list that I'm looking at right now and promising myself we'll do a great job of remembering everything that we've said this about. But I hope to. This is good stuff. That said... I think that's all the time we have for today. Join us next week on Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Rata as we discuss guest rights, long nights, and beautiful sights. The most beautiful of all. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a fan-made podcast discussing Erratic Errata's A Practical Guide to Evil. Check out the full serial at practicalguidetoevil.wordpress.com. Intro music for this episode was The Cradle of Your Soul by Lemon Music Studio. Music for the epigraph was Liquid Gold GLBML by Jeffrey Birch. Outro music, which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the divine, is Price of Freedom by Daddy S. Music. The music is provided by the generous license of pixabay.com music. Go and support all the artists who make this work possible by providing their stories and sounds free of charge. If you'd like to support this podcast, follow us on Twitter at TheLongPrice. Do you have questions, comments, or contributions? Are you overwhelmed by the urge to correct our errors? Email us at thelongprice at gmail.com. If you'd like to materially support our work, find our Patreon at patreon.com slash p-g-t-e-e. Join the ranks of our patrons and be called by name, receive personalized stories and art, or even join a PGTE-inspired RPG. We implore you, don't consider joining unless you're already supporting the artists who make this all possible. Special thanks to our patron and liege, always the claimant, never the named. Next week, Chapter 10, Menace.